Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward thinking out of box minds and health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind. And our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. How we think and how important that that is for evolving the conversation of how we can, you know, not destroy the planet. Um, if you structure space in a specific way and set up certain rules for how people can engage, um, that naturally people people's awareness of their environment, people's awareness of themselves, people's awareness of their community, not only is going to grow, but this kind of collective intelligence will develop that will transcend any individual. Once the commons is established and people are, are beginning to understand the my body, city body paradigm, um, the circulation of the resources to go towards where they're needed is going to happen on a much more fluid level. And the city as an extension of your body. Hey, what is up everyone? In this episode of the Sen podcast, we discuss conscious cities in the future with Rob Jamison. Rob is an extremely multi-talented human being and has done a lot of the inner work. He is a city planner, futurist, tech wizard and founder of AnyShare and he is also the technology manager at ArcroSanti which is a really cool and fascinating project. ArcroSanti is an experimental community and urban laboratory constructed in the Arizona desert. It attempts to test and demonstrate an alternative human habitat which is greatly needed in this increasingly perplexing world. The project also exemplifies a devotion to create an experimental space to prototype an environment in harmony with man and woman. The project at Art Sandy aims to carry out the amazing work of architect, urban designer, artist, philosopher Paolo Solari who explored the countless possibilities of human aspiration and Art Sandy is certainly another one of them. Paolo Solari had an gr- amazing quote. He said, In nature, as an organism evolves, it increases in complexity and it also becomes a more compact system. Similarly, a city should function as a living system, as one integral process, and is capable of demonstrating positive response to many problems of urban civilization population, pollution, energy, and natural resource depletion and quality of life. Cities should support the complex activities that sustain human culture. The city is the necessary instrument for the evolution of humankind. Such a great quote by a wise man, Paolo Solari, that really sets the tone for this podcast. So, so far we've seen glimpses of the future where technology could eventually replace the idea of man, but who knows what waits in the future. And before we get carried away, in the meantime, we have possibilities of building beautiful cities of the future, solving many of the problems that we face, such as pollution, population, energy, natural resource depletion, food scarcity, and quality of life. And if you do really think about it, the cities are going to be responsible for the creation of consciousness beyond that anything we've ever witnessed before. In the most prestigious jobs of the future of this futuristic experience will undoubtedly given to the architects. So that is why within this podcast we really hone in on the mind, body and spirit elements of a city. 
So this episode and every episode from now on is brought to you by you. So you can now go to our Patreon page and choose one of the cool reward tiers and support the podcast. And if you don't know what Patreon is, Patreon supports the podcast directly and you can also get to receive some really cool rewards in the process. Currently we have five tiers of rewards set up for you guys. We have reward tiers called Hidden Citizens, Pursuit of Knowledge, Seeker, Awakened Mind, Enlightened Ones and The Paradigm Shift. And each tier has lots of different fun rewards. You might get a cool binaural beat, a guided meditation every month. Or why not be a part of our brand new Ascend Conscious Hub, where you get access to other Awakened Minds including me and Chris and guests from the podcast. And we'll be also doing live videos, group discussions, bonus content. And every Thursday after each episode, we'll be having a group discussion about this week's podcast. And why not even be a part of something epic? the Ascend Community Podcast, where you get to come on the podcast and have your say on the podcast and be heard by millions. And all this is extremely simple. All you need to do is go to the Send Podcast website and click on the Patreon page and click the Patreon link. Patreon gives you, the people, the power to come together and decide, is this a conscious idea? So anyway, without further ado, let's jump into this I would love to just uh, connect with you guys a little before hopping right in. It sounds it sounds like um, it sounds like you're pretty you're ready to go uh, uh, soon though. <laughs> um, I, I'd love to just know real quick where, where are you guys at in the world and 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 how's how's it going? How's your lives uh, leading up to this moment here? So I can I can kind of ground into the session. Well, we're from uh, Newcastle, up in the northeast yeah. of England, which is a um, very cold place right now. <laughs> And um, what we did, well, Rob, when just deciding to start this, we were just two lads who were always having these amazing like talks. Well, we thought we were amazing, and um, it turns out so many a lot of other people did as well. So we thought, why best way to just start a podcast and just talk to all these incredible minds, and that's just led us down to you, and we just keep <laughs> on connecting with more and more amazing people. Yeah, and then obviously we we'll made, which is really interesting. Obviously, we made the connection with Matt because Matt was our one of our was. Um, it was our second guest ever and then from that just like through that one uh, one connection with Matt we've actually through that like Matt's met people that we've known and we've obviously Matt's guided us to people as well so it's very interesting just from one connection in the world mm-hmm. how it spirals all over totally and that's that's it's it's funny knowing Matt and having a similar experience so yes completely when when the when the message is there the right people can show up to amplify it and I've listened to a few episodes that you guys have done recently, and I'm definitely a fan. I will be, I will be trying to to lift it up and, and share the share the word too. So, oh, cool! That's, a, that's that's so good to hear. When um, obviously people like you with obviously great minds as well, sort of like see that about our episodes because we don't want to just try and like we want to try and reach everyone. You know what I mean? With, yeah, our audience yeah. is everyone. That's and we're still obviously we're too obviously both of us we're still learning ourselves and we're trying to like improve ourselves. I mean, we've only been on this like journey now, properly like really like yeah. about a year now obviously it's been prior to that we've been educating ourselves but yeah. it's probably took us a it's like a year of doing like podcasts and sort of like interviewing people and trying to get the best out of the guest we're still learning how to do that properly so mm. hopefully in the future it'll be even better <laughs> sure sure well the, the best teachers are always the best students and the best explorers and the exploration process never ends no matter how good of a teacher right eh? so yeah i hope i hope it's an ongoing process but 
it's already quite good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that's, I'm, that's cool. Thank you. We really, we really appreciate that. Are you an um, Rob? Are you an Arcosanti? Is it how do you pronounce it again? Arcosanti is it called? Arcosanti, exactly. It's a, it's an Italian word. Yeah. Are you there? Are you there now? Yep, I am here. Yeah, it's cool. That I was just looking at. I was reading an article about it. Like, I was doing a bit of research and things mm-hmm. into it, and it look it does. It looks really cool. Yeah, it is. It is quite a. It is quite a trip to be here, and and definitely I'll I'll share some some specific stories when. Uh, I mean, maybe we've begun, but I'm not sure when you want to actually drop into questions. But um, yeah, Arco, I, I've had a diverse uh, lifestyle and coming here is definitely the the culmination of many good things of, of how to live together in community so i'm very happy yeah that's cool i mean um we'll just jump in if you want rob but um we're both like both of us are really looking forward to having a conversation with you today because it's very interesting because i was thinking about this before we got you on the podcast and um, we're living in a time now where we have this opportunity to go even deeper than we've ever gone with uh, certain technologies and uh, yes. i think when you do put that technology in the right hands and you create this like a conscious environment in a community, in a city, in a world, the potential of that is it's so cool. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's really, uh, it's really a new paradigm that we're entering right now with technology and the ability to create win-win networks between many people. I mean, you know, you look at basic things like Wikipedia that have proven that crowdsourcing can result in higher caliber information being determined from many people and go way far, far into the future into what many of the people that are researching AI are uh, predicting. And yeah, technology truly has the potential, if, if balanced properly, to solve many of the world problems that we have today. Um, the, the discernment to, to guide things to get there, I think, is the art form. But on the technical level, I mean, already we have things that could do stuff like solve world hunger. Um, it's more socio-political issues as to why we don't act on those things, though. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And I, um, Rob, as well, just to um, just to paint the, obviously the listener a bit, um, sort of paint a bit of a picture for the listener. I know as well that you're involved in Arco Sant as well, which um, obviously I said before, it is such an amazing um, conscious like project. And like I said before, when I was looking into it before, it's the con- the whole concept around it is it's so cool because it's already like a community in the future. It's like a self-sufficient, sustainable community. And there's obviously a lot of challenges that does come with these like self-sustainable communities. But there's also a lot of amazing things as well. But um, I was actually wondering, like, how, like, I was wondering how has that whole um, development of Art Rosanti actually, like, affected your life in the way you sort of view sustainability on the planet? Sure, sure. Um, and maybe I should just just briefly say what what Arcosanti is uh, in general, and then what it is to me, and then I can I can comment specifically on sustainability. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's lots of touch points on Arcosanti, but basically Paolo Soleri had been a visionary architect to the 20th century. Uh, he recognized before many people that uh, the majority of the world's population would be living in cities by the middle of the 21st century, and because of that, started to look at kind of systemic issues that would come up if it was done through ad hoc development means or through um, capitalism only. And he developed a theory called arcology, which stands for blending architecture and ecology together. And there's a, a paradigm that we refer to here called CMD, which stands for complexity, miniaturization, and duration, which is um, um, a trend in systems as they evolve. And try to infuse the conversation of architecture with um, how these principles could best be uh, best be aligned to make people uh, thrive together. 
And so my entry point into this this location here was uh, I, I have a technology background, and you know when you when you exist in tech today, I think you can be um, you don't have to be tied to a specific location. Uh, you can be kind of like a, a a global citizen. You don't have to have a boss and an office in like the traditional uh, way that we would have done in the last century. And so I was just coming to say, you know, I, I want to be in a place around conscious people where, that are, you know, on the same page around climate change and sustainability and so that the, the baseline of the conversation is a bit higher. And um, what happened to me ex- uh, essentially was, you know, first of all, experientially is very different than just reading the theory. Uh, to be here experientially, it's kind of like I live in a, a mansion that I pay – that I don't pay rent for uh, with all of my friends where – Every there's so many aspects of the commons here that uh, it's almost overwhelming. I mean, we just have shared resources uh, way more so than people know what to do with. And that said, the the ecological footprint that Arcosanti makes is still very minimal. There's lots of um, there's lots to be said on the architectural side of you know passive solar and um, gray water systems and uh, local food production, etc. But to answer your question now, coming back full circle, I think the main thing that Arcosanti has taught me around sustainability is how we think and how important that that is for evolving the conversation of how we can, you know, not destroy the planet. Um, I'm the manager of the information department here. And when I come to a problem uh, that that has not been looked at before, meaning it's it's kind of like we're we're putting a new container on uh, on an issue so that we can hold it and look at it. Um, we first have to deal with misinformation, and then we have to deal with how much information uh, we're going to take and make it rise up to a conscious level for discussion. And on a very general sense for the entire world, that whole arc of how do we get clear and accurate information, how do we let go of past systems and iterate, is the most fundamental part of sustainability. I, I don't think it's you know I don't think it's specifically which thing is going to stop global warming tomorrow or should we all drive electric cars and, and things like that. So yeah, that's that's my that's my, my short answer for you. Well, that's pretty awesome, man. And I think it, I think it's awesome how you said it. it makes us think because it makes us think about these models actually being implemented all over the world and all over in the future. Is that the sort of vision like you expect to see from this, Rob? Well, I don't know. Uh, I, I no one has a, a, a monopoly on on a vision that will be implemented in other spots, right? Because any vision is a collaborative uh, endeavor, or just about it. Maybe a painting or something isn't. But as soon as collaboration comes into the into the into the uh, picture, it's much more about general guiding principles and having those principles be agreed upon and then have consensus. Um, as iterations happen, that way those principles can, you know, be interpreted properly. So I think for me, it's less about seeing arcologies built in different locations around the world and more about communicating really concisely that there's certain principles that if put into a physical environment or a community like social environment that without a doubt universally are going to make people uh, more able to thrive. Uh, they'll feel more secure in themselves. They'll feel more uh, stable economically. Um, they'll feel uh, more goodwill or the ability to extend more goodwill towards people before, uh, without being prompted, you know, just kind of uh, going at those those baseline assumptions of how we view the quote-unquote other in society. 
And it would definitely be my goal that the that these principles that Arcosanti is embodying uh, would be permeating. And, you know, the architecture definitely helps that. And, and the thinking behind it definitely helps that, uh, that that's happened here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, the whole idea of even just getting communities to think and, like, increase these um, these different levels of humanity, and I think that'll be a great way of even approaching the next stage of human evolution because we're all going to be, like, looking at, each other in a whole new more better light because there'll be a lot less um worrying problems on because that community that that you're um, envisioning can bring so much beauty to the world yes yes there, there's a it's a there's a quote that jacques fresco said who, who founded the venus project that I'm, I'm thinking of now which is um all worlds are caused by scarcity and i i don't know if that's fully true but it seems true in that um, you know, if you don't have food to eat, if you don't have uh, water to drink, if you don't have means for self-actualization, if you don't have um, a community around you that that builds you up rather than kind of ladens you with a, a guilt um, due to whatever religious or, you know, cultural beliefs that they put on you, if you don't have that, it becomes much easier to say um, there's another group over there that we have to kill in order to get uh, what it is that we need to to sustain and 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 thrive together, and you know, it, it, I really think technology in general uh, is going to be a large tool for helping resource scarcity um, be a problem of the last century, and from that um, we can set a new baseline for you know how we work out our problems together. Yeah, I like that. I like it's interesting because of that quote you said there. It just sparked in my mind. It's like it seems to me that when the basic um, the basic needs of humanity is sorted, that's when people can sort of like expand the thinking into more like sustainable projects and sustainable communities, and they can actually like once that foundation's in place, people can actually sort of like let go of the strain, sort of say, and expand the mind a bit further. Exactly. Exactly. If if we're all gripping to you know try and the, do the forty hour work week and then some in order to meet our base needs, um, to, to really pursue how to let go of, um, you know, certain types of baggage all the way through to how to evolve certain parts of society, it becomes much more difficult for the average person. And, you know, we live in an age now where inclusion of everyone is, is it's a, it's a birthright. You know, I, I can go on Facebook, I can go on Twitter and read tweets from Donald Trump and say something back and whether or not I get a response isn't important. What, what is important is that the the baseline expectation is that everyone has a voice that they can express. Um, and now we have to get better at, you know, honing what it is we're saying and knowing that when we're, you know, sharing information that isn't vetted properly, or it's just inflammatory and not the right timing, or um, when we're putting it into systems that polarize us, like, like Facebook, and I can go in depth on how different online systems polarize us and different economic systems, but when we're feeding energy into those systems, it's, you know, it, the problem is only half solved. Like we're, we're starting to work through the inclusion, uh, you know, being part of a global conversation, but we, we don't have how we can bring out the best instead of more like a kind of a, a stasis or a group think from, from that contribution. Yeah, I think, I think um, when, you, when you touched on online systems there, I think that's going to be a very interesting concept because we're really just touching like the beginning of online systems and how they can actually play a part in like communities. I know, like you said, there we're reaching a global audience now on on a scale of we can all just talk to each other like like this conversation now. But it's also the possibility like where could our consciousness go in the in these online systems? 
I was actually going to say there as well, Rob, just jump in. What happens when sort of like, um, like another five, like another five million people come online, something like that, something insane? Yeah, five, five million, or you said, or five billion? Yeah, five, uh, five billion. Sorry. Sure. Um, and there's probably more than five billion on already too. I, I don't know what the percentage is of the the world population, but I, I think it's something like, you know, like we're nearing five billion people that have regular internet access right now. Um, okay, so here, here's maybe I'll, I'll answer that question in a smaller way first, and then we can, I guess, uh, hypothesize that what could happen when something <laughs> like right, something like that goes on. Um, there's a there's a, a something to be said about um, algorithms versus just regular regulation right now, and by that I mean um, in any system where there's lots of people contributing, um, there will be formulas that we can loosely call algorithms that machines will be able to use in order to make recommendations for us. Um, for instance, uh, a self-driving car is a great example. You know, you can, you can drive a car and the car, excuse me, you don't, you can ride in the car and the car can make, uh, it can anticipate, uh, risk situations better than people. The reaction time is lower. So that's the algorithm side. Uh, the regulation side is what happens in the gray space when you're about to either hit an oncoming car and you're either going to, the automated car is either going to do a hard turn to the right and go into a crowd of people or it's going to just go, you know, straight on into the car itself, uh, you know, the oncoming uh, vehicle. And across the board, this kind of uh, decision making for at what point do humans intervene uh, and say that the machine prediction, even if statistically it might be correct, is not the one that we're going to, to go with. You know, and this, this can go from everything from how Google does indexing of search results and then makes predictions um, another example I, I heard recently was um, the the whole conversation on Uber and Uber, which has a li- like a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, it injects itself into different uh, <laughs> different mun- municipalities before this legislation to determine if it's legal or not. It can take over the majority of the market, and then at that point, uh, taxi cab unions can un- can come together, petition the government, and say this isn't fair. But at that point, you know, a large number of people in the urban environment are already, uh, they have a new baseline for what taxis should cost and how quickly they should get there and what the level of feedback they should be able to provide are. are. So if 5 billion people uh, tomorrow were to come more online, I think that question of, you know, regulation versus algorithms uh, is going to come to the forefront much more rapidly. And I think that we are vastly ill-equipped at dealing with those questions right now you know there's there's still like really basic questions that national governments are answering and uh, or asking but also answering covertly in terms of how much data they should be collecting from the citizens what that data can be used for to you know to for national security all the way through to healthcare reform and um yeah many more people in the conversation would probably flood the system so <laughs> it it probably would not be a smooth uh, a smooth transition mm. but I, th- I think it's one transition that will definitely happen i think that in the future i think we're all going to be available to this technology and i think every single nation on, on earth is going to be connected in a small and an even large way and i think that's going to be the most beautiful thing to see and i think what you touched on as well rob when you were talking about um these algorithms and these programs and they're based entirely on who we are it kind of then puts us into perspective like when do we actually become the program 
when do we actually become a part of the internet itself? Are we, are we actually going to become the internet? It's it dives into so many different thoughts when the possibility of the internet is absolutely endless. Totally, totally. And and by that, are are you referring to kind of like the, you know, the the um, idea that at some point we'll be able to offload our brain into the internet, or do you just mean that the internet will be a reflection of our preferences so much so that we don't see the diversity of society or? or, or what, how far out into the future are you talking with, with, with that? Uh, I was actually thinking on more of the lines of um, uploading our actual consciousness into the internet and expand ourselves on one whole dimensional co- cortex where we actually all can see everyone in their whole truest form. I know that sure. might be a bit out there, but <laughs> like I said, the possibility with the internet is absolutely endless, and I think it's fun to, fun to dive into these different realms. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great conversation piece. One thing that I, I was kind of amazed at, I, I find um, a, lot of, a lot of joy in going to different retail stores, like large chain stores that are selling um, different tech products, just to kind of see where, you know, what's reaching the market right now, how much things cost. Uh, and I went to a, a place called Fry's, and, which is like a, like a massive warehouse of electronics here. And the two most popular things that I saw this year... Uh, uh, one I predicted, which was drones, you know, obviously drones are everywhere uh, and what drones mean for society, uh, you know, we can talk about that. It's an interesting conversation. Uh, but the other was virtual reality. And there were so many different types of virtual reality goggles, including the ones that cost $10 that you put your smartphone in. And the the idea that very soon I can be in a simulated environment and there could be people that are in other spots of the world that are having a real-time conversation with me. And everything from the stereo headphones that I have on my head um, to, you know, my head gestures and where I look to even like there's there's rooms now that are doing things like if you're in a virtual reality experience and there's a wind, fans will trigger in different areas so that you have like a, you know, like a real multi-sensor experience. Um, I would I would almost argue that 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 sci-fi future that you're that you were proposing earlier of offloading our our consciousness on the internet it's it's kind of already happening through vr and i really i think that in the next few years uh this is going to explode uh you know when you when you can attend conferences remotely when you can i actually i heard a, a interesting one the other day i was at a, a, a vr conference at an architecture firm and um one of the developers there was saying you know there's lots of conflict in the middle east over access to specific holy lands and they were trying to develop an initiative so that way anyone could actually go and have a VR experience um, on a sacred site, even if that site, if they were to go there physically, would be you know dangerous due to bombings and things like that. And um, I know that in uh, on an intellectual level, that kind of sounds like 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 it sounds wonky. It sounds like like BS. But I can tell you from wearing VR headsets that really quickly the brain can be tricked into thinking that it's real and the question of yeah it's real it's not real um it's it's compartmentalized right along with wow that was incredible and i felt that i was there and now that i am there i am doing this new path in my life you know because that scarcity is is unblocked so 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was just going to say that as well when you were talking about there, the, the effect on the body and stuff, because it's very interesting how even just now on the simplest form, just playing a computer game, that actually has a full like sort of biological effect on your body, like your heart races and things like that. And it, it will be interesting to see what happens when obviously when VR is more fully adaptable to actually to more hu- humans around the planet and what will that actually do on the body and mind. It's, it's a fascinating concept. But as well, when um, Chris was talking about, when Chris mentioned about uploading um, conscious to the internet, I was actually thinking in my mind, it seems to me as well, with even just with Facebook now, on a more like a lesser foundational note, it seems that people are already putting all the thoughts out there on the internet anyway. By Every time someone has a feeling, the sort of like, a lot of people will write a comment that will send a picture exactly where they are on the planet or how they're feeling. It's interesting. Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting because it's it's all being filtered through a specific medium though, right? So like if you took the example of Twitter, which is an easier one to, to grok, you know, you're limited to 140 characters. If, you, if you're dealing with Facebook, you're dealing with a pre-curated uh, group of friends that are sharing content that you're going to like. And now Facebook ads, which are based on demographics. There's something to be said about um, people's actual experiences uh, resulting in some sort of an action as opposed to people's projection of their identity resulting in some sort of an action. And I think that Facebook is a really good example of where there's a missed opportunity for sharing experiences in actually creating empathetic bridges and, you know, I guess I, like real human to human connection. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example for, uh, for instance, um, right now there are all different platforms for, uh, for voting that can happen online. And obviously there's different thinking behind what types of voting, uh, are best for people to engage in, right? So in the United States, obviously we have the electoral college, um, online voting is still not possible here. I think actually this year they might've introduced it under specific circumstances if you were out of a state or something like that. But, you know, electoral college is one model, and then you have uh, consensus models, and then you have models that are more iterative, like like uh, like meritocracies, where there's smaller concentric groups that make decisions, and then they float up to the top. Um, what you have on something like Facebook is, is basically linear discussions. So, you know, someone posts something, um, then multiple people will respond in that thread, and then that thread will eventually get pushed down, and then the next thing will come in. And so because of that, it's much more difficult to kind of evolve thinking, to kind of get smarter as we go, as opposed to just becoming inflamed and more polarized uh, and more subjective on the media that we're being fed. And I think that, well, it's my hope anyway, uh, the systems for expressing what our opinions are and the systems for uh, expressing what our life really is like are going to go from that kind of linear uh, you know, it's three comments down. So that's why what I'm saying doesn't make sense compared to what you're saying, um, that that will be uh, replaced with things that are much more, much more holistic and much more, um, you know, radiating from central nodes as opposed to, uh, you know, beginning to, to end sort of thinking. Yeah, that was Rob, that was really, really well put there, by the way. And um but just as well, when you're talking about the voting as well, I was actually thinking in my head, and we talked about this last time, didn't we? But I said it's 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 really um it's really funny how you can actually go on like Amazon and you can buy like a pack of toilet rolls with one click, but you can't vote all over the world. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, well, government is not the is not the most progressive uh, change maker, right? Um, private industry is right now, thanks to thanks to the way that we've we've structured our, our market economy, and that's for the foreseeable future. That's that's how it's going to be too. You know, if private industry sees the need to innovate, um, that will be the means at which that will be introduced. That said, um, 
I think there's two big mechanisms at play that are changing that right now, and, and I can I can touch briefly on them. Uh, it might be a good a good a good discussion point. Um, one is the idea that we can be um, excuse me we we can be entirely uh, local and small and still interconnected, so we can still be pooling our knowledge together um, in the in the movement of uh, developing more commons that these are called SLACs, which stands for small local, small local and open connected communities. So the idea is you don't have to take information. You, excuse me. You don't have to take information from a kind of a global mind unless it's relevant. But when you determine insights that could be uh, useful for people that are bigger than yourself, you contribute them back to a kind of like a global knowledge commons. And what that's really good at doing is it creates this, this local autonomy, but it also, helps uh, local groups create much larger tipping points that can actually innovate much larger systems. So, uh, you know, for instance, if I want to deal with like rainforest uh, deforestation or something like that, as a small community, we can't necessarily create a tipping point against um, whatever major corporation is trying to do that. But through these small, local, open and connected initiatives, we actually can. And a, a big part of that, too, is... Um, Ownership becomes much more simple when you have face-to-face -face relations with everyone that's contributing on something. So another another part of my life, and I, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but I'm the CEO of a company called AnyShare. And what we do is we make um, shares, which are essentially collections of needs and resources for many people. And um, we knew going into this that the question of ownership was going to be pretty paramount for for developing these new types of repositories. So at Arcosanti, for example, what I've done is I've itemized all the different community assets. We've itemized different um, tools and different skill sets and et cetera around site. And just now we're starting to list out all of the different needs that we have with the hope that we can then crowdsource that from a much larger audience. And what that's doing is that's letting us break out of this kind of um, strictly capitalistic paradigm in that we need money as the intermediary to, to move and instead saying, you know, what can a whole bunch of little touches from many people result in? And can that actually build something that's really living and breathing, you know, not just a, not just a crowdfund, but, but can it build like a, like a city organism that people remotely are invested in? So I hope that governments in the future uh, will be able to really engage crowdsourcing and really engage this kind of um, uh, like micro uh, investments to innovate much more rapidly to, to compete with, you know, global enterprise. Yeah, Rob, I liked how you said um, living and breathing there because it's very interesting because it, it very much seems to me when you mentioned Arco Santi again there, that seems to me that, like that's what you you were doing at Arc Center because you were creating this like living environment where what you said there the word you is living and breathing it was perfect because I was actually thinking in my head there like going back into the past like where these tribes were more like interconnected and they were more they had this like sustainable environment where it was working for them but it's very interesting yeah. to think about because in the past these certain tribes and obviously there's still certain tribes still remain on the planet today that have this like like connected air connectivity built in with their whole community. But it's interesting how they actually, what you were doing is Art with Santi to create the connection with the tribes. It's sort of like a more of a collective group. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. It's, uh, well, it's, bo it's, it's both uh, like a local tribe and that we have our own culture and that culture is, you know, endlessly nuanced. 
Um, and uh, it's in a large part based on face-to-face meetings. So for instance, every day, everyone in the community has a meeting together. Uh, it's, a, it's a 15 minute meeting and it's right before lunch. And so, you know, you kind of get to get together and see where people are at and get to announce things that you want to make people aware of, which can be everything from, Hey, I'm doing this, uh, let's all get together through to, Hey, I'm really upset about this. I, uh, you know, I, I want to express it. And then after that we go to lunch and that's like the perfect community forum to not have it be so stressed, but just have it be like it would have been back in the day where, you know, we don't have to have a board meeting to discuss certain personnel issues. We just have to sometimes express them and then, um, and then share a meal together and let things kind of come out. Let, let the emotional processing happen in parallel with, with some of the, the more logical things that have to be solved. And at the same, at the same time, Arcosanti is obviously very forward thinking with what it, what the models that it wants to do. So communication and being relevant, uh, and, and proactive with, with sharing what we've learned for the global conversation is, is also kind of like baked into the, the DNA here. Yeah, I liked how you said that. It's really interesting because I think what you are doing at Arcosanti, it's it seems to me like you're providing a model for others to sort of like uh, follow, sort of say. And I was actually want to ask you, is that what you guys were sort of hoping for? Like for others sort of you, so you can be sort of like a test model and then maybe other people could see what you are doing and get maybe get inspiration from that and be like provide a model for others. Totally. Well, well, Paolo, Paolo Soleri, the founder, the idea that he was following uh, was that this would be an urban laboratory so that this would, you know, people can cherry pick what was working here and, and what would, you know, what would work for them. Um, but specifically what they were, what he was trying to do is he was trying to design spaces so that when people lived and worked together with minimal environmental impact, that their consciousness would actually, um, amplify off each other. So, there's kind of this this dumbing down that can happen in society through media, right? And there's also a dumbing down that we spoke about that happens through scarcity when you're working 40, 50, 60 hours per week. And there's also a dumbing down that happens when, you know, a city is so big that you don't know your neighbor. And so your primary means of socialization is through social media and things like that. And to take that and throw it all out for a second, what, what Paolo was saying and predicting, you know, way in advance was that, if you structure spaces in a specific way and, you know, co-working spaces exemplify this to an extent, um, if you structure space in a specific way and set up certain rules for how people can engage, um, that naturally people, people's awareness of their environment, people's awareness of themselves, people's awareness of their community, not only is going to grow, but this kind of collective intelligence will develop that will transcend any individual. And, that's pretty much been like the the main focus of my study here. I've been I've been charting out the different stages of uh, we're not really a city we're we're very small but I've been charting out the different stages of groups kind of raising their state of collective intelligence and collective consciousness and understanding more deeply what are the what are the tipping points and what are the the kind of um, the signs that a, a new level is starting to be reached and, and things like that. And um, that part, I think, is is very relevant. I mean, it's it it can be applied to to any any location, regardless of whether it's a city or it's you know just someone's workplace environment. Yeah, that was that was a that was a fantastic point, by the way. And I really want to hone on that. And when you were talking about that, um, I think is he called what's he, how would you pronounce his name again, Paolo? 
Paolo, yeah, P-A-O-L-O. Yeah, he seems like a very, because obviously I did a bit of research prior to this as well, and he seems like a very sort of like, um, he has like a great, like like a re- really great mind, and obviously the way you were describing him there when he was thinking out the box, sort of thinking like how actually environments can actually, well, this is the way I sort of deciphered from what you said, how actually like environments can sort of affect consciousness as well, and I wanted to actually hone in that point because I had a thought in my head, and me and Chris have discussed this before, and it take that sort of a little bit deeper, um, how actually environments can actually affect different states of consciousness. Because um, I was reading a book, I haven't read it all, but it's a book, I don't know if you've read it, it's called Shivers Down Your Spine. And it was talking no. about how um, when we're like near amazing structures, and um, to put a bit of context in it as well, I actually think in a, some sense the, the pyramids, like the Egyptian pyramids, are sort of on this line as well. But it was, the book was actually talking about how certain like structures are actually designed to um to make you question things and put you state in um put you in like these states of awe in sort of yeah. hack, hack your perception and it was talking about how these experience like these experiences um can actually stretch your um, perceptional boundaries and make you uh, create these new maps of reality in your mind yes that's exactly it that's exactly that's good that's that's really cool i i can say that um I did. I didn't know a lot about this before I, I got here, uh, but a lot of the architects have taught me. But you're you're exactly right. Um, the first point uh, is putting in a state of awe, and and I think awe is uh, ambitious. Even I, I could even just say it as the present moment. Uh, Arcosani is is beautiful. It's not. It doesn't fill everyone full of. It doesn't fill everyone of awe. Maybe if you've been to Dubai or you know Seoul, South Korea or something, and you've seen really phenomenal architecture. Um, or you would be able to be less impressed by the scale that we're working on. But because the integration to the natural environment is so deep here and the fact that it's built by 7,000 volunteers by hand, there's all these nuances and there's all these like organic um, uh, factors that pull you into the present moment. And so because of that, the transition between spaces isn't, you know, looking at the cell phone and thinking about what's going to happen next. It's often like, Breathing deep, resetting, um, looking at a you know something, uh, some sort of a, an animal that's going by, picking some part of the edible landscape, and that in itself is is a revolutionary thing for the architectural uh, you know the architectural uh, paradigm. Another thing that's that's very relevant and is played with here is, is the idea of scale and how when you're in buildings of different scales and even changing scales as you move through them, how that can create different feelings of either repression or transcendence. Um, one example here is, uh, and this is actually developed by, to my knowledge, was developed by Paolo's, one of Paolo's um, major teachers who was um, Frank Lloyd Wright, who's one of the most famous architects of the 20th century. And um, he has a uh, I guess a building practice that he does in a lot of spaces, which is right before you go into a large room, the doorway is made uncomfortably small. So you compress and as you walk through it, you kind of shrink and you feel this feeling of the walls closing in and then you open up into the next room and you feel this feeling of, of awesomeness and of feeling really powerful and of like taking up space and, and, and all that. And little, little tricks like that architects use to, to make it so that when people enter a space, specifically like communing, community meeting halls, that they, that they walk in with that feeling of, of abundance. So yeah, I, I can go on. There's lots of architectural, um, little yeah. things that 
they do here but those are those are two i was just going to say as well and you were talking about the artist there because i was actually thinking in my head there like an artist in the, like say like to transition this over like even a like a bigger city around the world an artist could actually um like so so let's say like how artists like you were saying there decodes messages within the artwork i was actually thinking yeah. like an architect in the future could actually cleverly create a building or an architecture in a place or city to even like consciously or even subconsciously hack our perception and affect how we're thinking Totally, totally, um, and yeah. Well, so that, that's that, that's definitely a good topic to explore. So, one thing I'll say that we're doing right now that I think is is relevant for this is um, using augmented reality to hide messages within architecture. So there are. I don't know if you guys have have messed with any of the the augmented reality phone apps. Have you guys explored any of that? Have you? I haven't. Yeah, um, I, I I've been trying to um, you know that ten dollar headset that. Um, that you were on about before and then uh, yeah, yeah. i downloaded loads of different apps and um i tried them out and one of them was um just walking around these different cities and i could actually see um by just turning my head i could actually see all these beautiful places and stuff like that and um i was obsessed with looking for the everest one it was my friend um he was really into it as well he was telling us you've got to see the everest one and i was looking for it ever and i always and i always wanted to like see everest and I'm, I don't know why I'm always fascinated about mountains. I just find them so peaceful, and and I always want to see like what it'd be like to be at the top of Everest. And and I always yeah. felt, and I felt like um, like I really was wasn't experiencing the whole understanding of it because I wanted to really feel like the journey, like from yeah. the minute you're flying over there and the minute you're actually seeing it going to base camp, the whole experience. I wanted to like, I think the true reality is the journey. And not just like in the perception of the vision. Totally, totally. Um, and just just for clarity too. So you're talking about virtual reality, and and I'm wondering, have you tried any of the augmented reality stuff with, with the phone? And and I I could back up too and say it's not actually not commonly known the difference between augmented and virtual reality. So so we we could start there too if, if that's if that's good. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah um, I was under the perception of like augmented reality was of something which is um which is viewed to be there, but not there. Is that the, is that right? It's exactly, exactly. Virtual reality is a, is a, is a fake environment. Uh, you know, it could exist or it could not exist, but it's either way, it's not in the room that you're in right now. And augmented reality just means, um, adding different layers of information onto what's right in front of you. And, you know, I could, I, I could even argue that people that wear headphones and walk around, um, are augmenting their reality because they're, they're adding this extra layer of information and having an experience because of it, but they're not disconnected from, like you're saying, whatever it's like the process of getting to a location. And so coming back to like your initial question on, on could buildings essentially hack our perception? Um, one way that I think that that's already happening and is going to happen more is through augmented reality. Um, for example, at Arcosanti, like I was saying earlier, this, this space was built by 7,000 volunteers and some of the baggage that that creates is that, um, often to change specific traditions, there has to be this feeling of, well, we have to know where we came from. We have to understand it and value it and then, you know, really determine if we're going to continue doing it, not just ad hoc decided. And so, um, my team and I kind of got on the, the phrase of, uh, if the walls could speak. And what we're starting to do is there's apps with your for your phone with augmented reality where you scan a little image, which looks kind of like a QR code. And then it will place a, uh, an augmented object through the screen on your phone. So you're looking through your camera 
um, that gives extra information that actually isn't there, and it will orient in such a way that it is, you know, it seems like it's in the the actual space. And what we're starting to do is we're realizing that those QR codes to trigger them um, actually don't have to be QR codes. They can actually just be architectural features themselves. So, for instance, I can walk up to a specific part of the architecture on the site here, um, scan it just because it looks interesting and, you know, it's cement. And from that, I'll be able to get um, different historical information for how this part of the building was built. Um, Eventually, I'm sure there'll be uh, uh, like real-time data too, as in um, I'm seeing the utility use of what's happening in that building. And it's not necessarily explicit, as in it's not a billboard that's projecting these things to me. But the hidden within the architecture itself are all these um, access points for more knowledge so that we can be more aware of the environment. And I think that as, you know, marketing and augmented reality stuff advances, you're going to see more and more attempts at using the context of the building to hack people's perception and to guide specific behavior. Obviously, it'll be done to make them buy things, but hopefully it'll be done, done also to increase awareness and help them circulate what they need more effectively. Like, like for instance, uh, if you were to walk into like a co-working space in New York City and there was a little thing that you could scan right there. And as soon as that happened, it would know, you know, here are 10 people that could help you based on needs that you've expressed on Facebook. And now one of the rooms on a map on your phone is lighting up and everyone else is going to get paged in 10 minute increments. And, you know, then you can meet there in exchange or whatever the case may be. But the building itself can kind of become um, a maze with different um, information ends at, at helping people in that way. Yeah, I liked, I really liked how you said that because it's really interesting to think how actually augmented reality can actually affect our social decision making. And um, I was reading somewhere um, as well when you're talking about the billboard there. I was actually, and this is sort of, this is more of a negative note, but I was, it's just the way my mind works sometimes. I always think of the worst. Sometimes I think of the great, but then sometimes I think of the worst as well. But I was actually thinking, like, obviously, if these um, sort of, um, these big industries actually get a hold of this technology. I was actually thinking they could be incorporating because I was reading somewhere that they actually incorporate in the future they're going to be incorporating sort of like um, these facial like uh, recognition systems into the um, billboard system itself. So that it was talking about how the small camera can actually like scan everyone in front of the um, the billboard, and then the camera sort of scans your face and it can detect your age and your gender. And it was actually talking about how it can actually even um, it can even tell how much time you've actually viewed the ad for as well. So then it was talking about how the billboard would actually create this um like a demographic um profile of you. And then it yes. then that then what it would do from that is actually show an advertisement that you'll likely sort of want to see. Yes. Yes, absolutely. They, and it's my understanding they already have this. Uh it it, it will look at um gender, it'll look at uh age, it'll look at body type, and then it will show, you know, for instance, by this by this uh piece of clothing that's, you know, geared towards overcoming insecurities of that body type or, you know, whatever, whatever the the case may be. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right in that this is really going to become, um, it's really going to become unavoidable and all pervasive. I read an article the other day and I wish I remembered the percentage, but it was talking about how, I believe it's the NSA in the United States already has facial recognition on over a quarter of the population of the country, meaning one in four people of the country, um, if your face was scanned by by our government, it would be able to tell you the name of who that is. 
which is insane considering that people look differently at different times in their life, right? Like, you know, you, you grow a beard, you cut your hair, things like this. Um, and the fact that that already exists and that percentage of the population in, is indexed, and that's the government. I mean, that's not even the private sector. The private sector is much more agile in that, you know, you have Amazon Echo, which is always listening to you now, <laughs> and things like this. It's just really insane in terms of um, the amount of specificity that ads can be served and, and will be served uh, in the future. Rob, have you ever seen the film Minority Report? I have. With Tom Cruise? Yes. Where, where yes. He, um, he walks into the um, shopping mall and all of a sudden, like, um, these ads, like, scan his eye and automatically, like, they come to life in front of him and they actually just, like, advertise all these different products and that. And that's the how the way they're, they're tracked as well. They track the entire AM population as well. So they know where everyone is at the right spot and the right time. It's it's kind of like, where is our privacy going to be in these new realities? Sure. I mean, I, you could argue that your privacy is already gone. I mean, if you carry a cell phone, um, I no one really knows this. But, you know, if you ask Edward Snowden, uh, he would say that regardless of what your preferences are, um, the major telecom companies are tracking your habits and your location at all times. Um, and then, obviously, if you turn on location services for iPhones and Droids, they will explicitly track it. There's no doubt that this is what's going to happen. Um, where I focus to kind of deal with that, <laughs> that upcoming tidal wave of privacy breaching and these types of questions is really in understanding the mechanism behind how that information could be manipulated. And I don't want to sound too anti-capitalist because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I definitely think that our market economy is essential for, you know, helping um, resources circulate. But uh, I can also say that when corporations and multinational corporations get to the size that they're at um, and they're unable to be checked by government, that it becomes really dangerous and the, the best solution that I've seen is um, different forms of commons-based peer production. There's a, there's a very big uh, movement right now happening of, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll call it commons-based peer production, but it kind of combines the creative commons movement and the open source movement um, into a, a co-ownership model. So a bunch of people can get together uh, and rather than buy a car from Toyota, for example, uh, instead parts can be sourced from different communities uh, really rapidly or machines can be built and raw materials. They also call it, um, what's it called? Um, oh, I can't think of the name. Oh, circular economy. Circular economy refers to when you have things introduced that don't have planned obsolescence as part of the DNA. Instead, it's designed to be broken down and then repurposed uh, locally. And um, there's a lot of movement to find systems like this that way people don't have to be reliant on large multinationals for creating like the core tech that we need for our life and if that happens and as that continues to happen i should say the question of well who owns that technology is really paramount yeah. and it's it's been my work with with my with my tech company to solve that um we are the first completely cooperative company in the united states history and what that means is um, every stakeholder group that we impact can co-own uh, the company itself and can vote on policy and can also get dividends from the proceeds. And when you have that type of radical inclusion um, in uh, 
a network of resources, what it really, uh, what it really enables is uh, a kind of ethical foot on the ground. So that way it's not, um, the, the, the opposite would be something like Uber, for instance, where, um, I, as a participant and beholden to the wage amounts that the Uber, um, executives and venture capitalists, uh, say, and there's no ability for me to directly connect with a, a cab driver without going through the app because the kind of controlling of that channel of information is their whole business model. Um, and in the future, I hope that as these networks become, become more pervasive and people start to self-organize and understand and index all the resources that they have to meet their needs and realize that they're much more sustainable because of it, that they actually co-own those networks themselves. Um, and if that's possible, then I think the, the conversation of like the multinational spying will uh, in many ways be reframed to, to, you know, we're not as dependent on, <laughs> on, on those types of uh, businesses. Yeah, when you when you when you, when you, when you mentioned there before about um, uh, privacy as well, I was actually thinking in my head there. I was trying to raise the question in my head: Can we actually get to a point in time, like on this planet, where we can actually have sort of them both? We can have transparency and privacy. Like, can we have them both? Because I'm I'm definitely all for like making every like say if you had like a, a global leader, I want to like for the future of this planet. I definitely envision where we can actually have like sort of every decision like so transparent so that everyone can see what's actually really going on. But I was actually thinking, can we actually have the transparency and the pr privacy at the same time? I don't know if we can have them both. Well, do you believe that there is, that, that if certain things were common knowledge, that that would be better for the population? Meaning, like, uh, let's take something silly. Let's, let's, say, um, let's say, hypothetically, the government knows that extraterrestrials actually do exist. And let's say that information is resulting in decisions getting made. Um, or let's say, you know, we found out that Russia interfered with the U.S. election, whatever. If that information was communicated transparently, is, is that a good thing? Giving, you know, the public actual access to what is happening. Yeah. I don't. I don't know the answer. I'm. 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 It's a question for you both. Yeah, I was. I'll just. I'll, before you want. <laughs> I was just going to say as well. I always think. I always. Me is coming from my heart. I always feel that every single bit of um, like information, like sort of on a global scale, like that, should always be transparent. Like if I was, if I was like, if I had a bit of information like that that I know could actually really affect the planet and affect global consciousness, which. These are big issues. I think the, these have got to be, them sort of issues have got to be transparent. Mm. That's what I feel. I think as well, like, it'll make countries as well a lot less responsive in their decision-making. So they'll be a lot less likely to act that knowing that people will actually already know their outcomes. Yeah, and I just want to say as well, Rob, as well, something as well. I know you just, I know you're just using it as an example. You're using, like, say, like, um, like, or aliens out there but it's very interesting because if that sort of bit of information did come up and say the government were holding that back if they actually put that out there and said oh yes aliens are real that would shift the whole game in the whole system because people would stop fighting over these stupid issues like going to people's foreign lands and fighting over stupid issues because it would actually be like a bigger picture to the whole universe you're totally 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 that's that's it that and i guess that's the in many ways, that's that's what I appreciate about your guys' podcast. It's that you're you're shifting the conversation not in a way that's a linear one, but it's really it's promoting like a like a discontinuity. It's like if we if we I think everyone at the time of history that they find themselves in they they imagine they look at the past and then they imagine that progress is going to happen in the future at kind of a comparable rate. 
you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, this this war has happened for this many years and, you know, this type of strife has existed and it's a systemic thing and blah, blah, blah. Um, and when you introduce game changing information like what you guys are doing and if if things like if aliens are real was confirmed, absolutely, it, pro- it, it produces a, a, a discontinuity that we don't know what's on the other side. And I guess that produces fear. And that's why there's a I, I guess the. The, the general sentiment among people that have specialized in uh, like secretive information is that if the general population knew it, that chaos would ensue and then the current means of controlling people or keeping order, maybe I'll say more optimistically, of keeping order would be compromised. And I think that that's absolutely correct. But the question is, so what? If, that is, if, if knowing that aliens are real does prompt uh, this kind of human-centric existential crises and then we don't know what's on the other side of that i'm still of the mind like you that we should do it anyway and then find out because just just knowing we can actually make responses based on what is as opposed to what we've been told yeah obviously i was thinking as well just me as a like me as a, i was thinking about that and just me as a conscious human being on this planet i just i just i can't me i know me being a person i mean I'm, i know everyone's different but i just can't there's something inside of us I just can't hold stuff back like that it needs to be there's, there's bigger there's bigger reasons to like how this information can un- unfold in you as a human being on this planet you need to sort of you, if you've got some information like that you actually need to put it forward and just, just not be scared and sort of like stand up for I mean if you look and this is going a bit deeper but if you look back in history and look at all these people all these great leaders that's come before us like they've actually they were they were the, they were always the minor, nine, minority, sorry, and they have actually come forward with some information which they knew would actually jeopardize their whole life. I mean, here's an example as well. But just look at Robert Snowden; like he put everything on the line just for the, yeah. for the sake of someone else. And I think that's a, and honestly, I watched that film as well, and I cried at the end of that film because I yeah. actually felt his emotion of like understanding how much he'd actually done and how good he would actually feel for doing that. Yes. Yes, completely. You know, there's something to be said about, um, you know, how ready big businesses and governments are to be transparent with information versus um, what systems we can use to kind of guarantee credibility uh, that we can act with now. And are are you guys familiar with with blockchain and, and what that's doing to the kind of technosphere right now? Yeah, I'm not I'm not really like really clued up on it, but I do understand a little bit of it. Sure. So, so, uh, just a, so basically blockchain is a, think of it as like a, like a, like a, like a list, um, with numbers in it that are unlocked with a hash. And those, those numbers store certain information and based on the hash, which is, um, like an, kind of like an ID that everyone has with a password, you can unlock specific information, but otherwise that information is hidden. And this ledger of information is, simultaneously copied to thousands and thousands and thousands of computers. And so what you have is you have the ability to store information across many computers so uh, in a way that's hidden, encrypted, and safe, um, so that uh, if one computer tries to hack it, all the other you know 9,999 computers will say, this one is different, we're going to squash that, therefore we know that that information is not true. And blockchain became popular obviously through things like cryptocurrencies, um, like, uh, like Bitcoin, uh, as a means of transparently showing how much money are in all these different accounts. So it doesn't show the name of the person that's on the account, but it says, you know, person with this ID um, 
and this is the amount that's there. And if that person was to try and change their number and hack it, um, there's a kind of um, redundancy built into the circum into the situation. And the implications of blockchain uh, in creating and preserving um, accurate information are really exciting. Uh, I had read the other day that a lot of the world banks are thinking about transitioning to having kind of a more transparent accounting system. That way, um, people can't try and hack their their you know proprietary databases, and instead, um, the global markets are actually stored on people's computers themselves. And then you look all the way further uh, onto the social side of things, where people are talking about if blockchain can be used with things like OpenID to really present trust in the future when you're dealing with people you don't know, meaning like if you have different accounts in different areas, um, you know, with um, historic purchasing activities and behavioral activities and things like that, if those can be connected with an online ID that's uh, authenticated through blockchain, so that way if you need to meet up with someone off Craigslist that you've never met before, um, you have some sort of a unhackable uh, proof that they are who they said they are and you know this doesn't get at the bigger questions of are there aliens necessarily but it does feel very much like a like a grassroots technology that hopefully can we can say you know we accept that this is a fact um, and now that bigger businesses and world banks etc are starting to look at embracing it um, I think that that will be like um like a river that uh, more and more types of information than we can see currently can start to go and then be kind of globally held as a collective truth. Mm, that was great. Put, that was really good. Yeah, put. it was. I think I wasn't expecting that. Like, um, Rob, um, just before I ask the next question, I'd just like to know, um, how are you for time? Are you okay? I'm good. Yeah. No, cheers. Thanks for checking in. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, just here with you guys until, until, uh, until we wrap. All right, cool. Okay, well, yeah. Just want to respect your time. That was all, Rob. Cheers. So, um, Rob, um, one of the things that we really want to delve deeper in is like the future of a city, and really delve deeper in like the elements of future cities, and that they could really revolutionise like humanity. Really, like we have got a few points down where like we'd love to delve deep into your mind and see your thoughts on. So, something sure. I would love to dig into is like implementing the mind, body, spirit elements of a city, because like it's yeah. clear to me it. It needs shifting, but uh, what uh, what do you think are the things that we need to change in a city to make it more collective to shift people? Ah, uh, that's awesome! Great question. Um, hmm. So maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll talk about the the kind of stages of consciousness evolution in in a city, and at each of these stages, there there's different activities that would would have to happen. So. I think this will kind of give a container to answer that question. Um, obviously, the the most basic level of um, of attuning a group to to being its its maximum output in a city is making sure base needs are met. Um, you know, if people are hungry, if they're um, if they're scared uh, because they're going to get evicted, if they can't afford things that are that are healthy for them uh, and like living spaces that are adequately sized for the number of people that they're living with, um, it's immediately a fail. So that's that's baseline. Um, the next, and this is what's starting to happen right now, is a strong commons. Um, the whole idea of access over ownership. You know, I don't have to own the car. I can I can call Uber. Uh, I don't have to own the the drill. Uh, I can call the neighbor uh, is is obviously you know it's kind of catching on like wildfire in the last decade, 
and we already spoke about as these these kind of knowledge commons are being generated the question of who owns them is it a private corporation or is it the people themselves that's a fundamental part of that conversation right there and i think there's already lots of movement for having communally owned um commons of what's what resources are in different cities um so let's 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 start the conversation there and now i'm going to go into maybe a better answer of your question um the stage that i've i've mapped after after these first two is what i'm just calling the the my body city body uh paradigm and this is where people begin to um transcend the idea of the other in society uh what this looks like is um at Arcosanti, for example, uh, occasionally someone will come through and they're not a good ma uh, match for the community here. And uh, on, a, on a kind of a, a gut level, people will often say, you know, they don't belong here. Let's, let's, you know, is there a way of getting them removed? Uh, something like this. And once the community kind of gets past that, they realize we're in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Um, there is no other, there is no uh, kicking someone out. So every problem that we're seeing, we have to embrace as our own problem. And, you know, the obstacle is the path kind of, I guess, like Zen um, statement is, is very relevant for this. And at this stage, um, some really radical uh, things start to change culturally. Um, I, I'm from New York City, so I, I mapped this onto things back home. But when you view, uh, you know, the all is one in, in your living environment and the city as an extension of your body, you would do things like, for instance, like picking up trash would almost be like picking up trash in your house, which is when, if you walk down New York city, it would be a totally radical concept. <laughs> um, you know, general, um, uh, assumption of good nature of, of all individuals because they are, they, they are part of, uh, the same body. Like th things like this just kind of become the, 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 the content of the conversation. Uh, so that's, that's one stage. Uh, what, what starts to happen after that is circulation of resources um, as to where they're actually needed. So currently, you know, Section 8 housing is what we call it, which is low-income housing and welfare and things like that. That's currently how we meet the needs uh, when need comes up and there's no societal way for that to function. Um, I think that once the commons is established and people are beginning to understand the my body, city body paradigm, um, the circulation of the resources to go towards where they're needed is going to happen on a much more fluid level. Um, there was an example I had read in Canada of there was a like a failing healthcare program for a bunch of elderly citizens in I think it was I think it was Montreal. And um, what the people did was they they organized together to form a, a kind of grassroots uh, Meals on Wheels program where they would also check in keep the elderly that were living at home um, socialized and also check in and do like some pretty base level um, physical and psychological evaluations and then refer them to medical professionals if needed. And what they found out in the process of that was I think the average participant in the program dedicated like two hours per week to this and saw, you know, two different elderly and it ended up saving like tens of millions of dollars and resulting in all this preventative care happening just because it was you know, people had what they had extra of, you, you're less prone to try and hold on to so tightly. So people have two extra hours. And what resulted in was, you know, massive um, reallocation of resources, um, not through a centralized body, but through something decentralized. Um, 
after that, I, I have two more stages after this, so I, I hope this isn't... Too, should, should I stop there, or should I... No, 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 yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fine, it's amazing. Sure, sure. Okay, so the next stage is uh, autonomy of participation. So the idea is, once we break the idea of the 40-hour work week, and we're able to meet our needs through the help of technology um, more efficiently, uh, the idea, or the question becomes, you know, what do people do in order to um, stay you know, keep the system going and also stay um, as productive members of society. And I think I'd mentioned this very early on in the discussion today, but this is already kind of being experienced by people in the tech industry that are web developers or whatever work remotely. But um, the, the, the trend that I'm anticipating is that you have multiple projects that you can engage in. Um, it's much less based on credentials, much less, you know, Google does not even require a high school diploma to be a, a senior developer. Um, it's all about how you solve problems. And it's all about solving problems that are inspiring to you. So, you know, an alternative, um, an, an alter alternative community um, organizational models like, like um, meritocracies uh, there is no centralized body for dealing with the type of problems. It's more that the problems are known and then a group will form around solving that issue and then the group will dissolve after that issue is solved. And that's the, that's, that's the trend. I think that people will be pursuing more self-actualization and they'll be pursuing work that makes them feel good. And if competition exists uh, um, as a dominant thing in the market, I think it's going to be more on how much good can we create for this kind of collective that we all understand that we're interconnected with um, and, you know, merit-based achievements as opposed to um, strictly how much money is made. So, and then after autonomy in participation, um, what I am predicting is, is kind of like a telepathic and synchronistic reality that people will start to exist on. And this is the, it's obviously the most hazy, but it's something that I'm very interested in um, documenting here at Akrasanti, where I am able to know just based on certain patterns of certain individuals and needs that are seemingly unrelated to, uh, to uh, uh, any conversations I've had, what that individual will need and often even help that individual without even knowing that that's what I'm doing. And to give you an example, um, it's one of those things like, uh, you know, I, I walk uh, across site. Um, I know that the sprinkler is on and it shouldn't necessarily be on. Um, I go back to the office and get a wrench so I can try and figure out how to solve it. And then as I'm walking back, um, the maintenance person uh, is walking and I give him the, the wrench and he just said he was going to get the wrench because the sprinklers and we're we're, we're, the need wasn't explicitly expressed to me, but I knew that it existed, and I did my part as an as an autonomous agent in that. And um, you know, when you get to festivals, like I don't know if you guys have been to Burning Man or other festivals that are not necessarily um, within the just the traditional um, zero sum exchange paradigm, where you know you're trying to maximize profit, um, and people come in with this kind of openness. It really does happen a lot where, you know, you think, you know, I want to see, I haven't seen my friend in a while and you turn around and they happen to be right there. Or, you know, just as you think you, you're getting hungry, someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I have an extra sandwich. Would you like one? And people become actors in this larger kind of um, super intelligence and they are not fully aware as to how beautiful the pattern is, but they are as they're, as they're doing it, um, getting the feedback to gratify them, to be more open 
to just continue to be that kind of um, uh, subconscious agent in the system becoming uh, higher consciousness and, uh, you know, yeah. So that's that's the highest stage that I'm that Yeah, I'm Rob, saying. I just want to, I don't know, I'm not, I think you might have, I'm not sure if you've got another point, I'll let you go ahead in a minute, but I just want to jump in there and say something because when you were talking about understanding the patterns and you said sort of like on a subconscious level, people obviously understand what people's needs are without really even sort of like communicating. We had a conversation yeah. about this a while ago and we're saying, this is, this is really deep, but just imagine in the future we could actually, instead of me like sort of communicating with language to you, I can just actually put my thought and my feeling inside your body. And we talked about this last yeah. time, didn't we? But it's, it's a fascinating concept because we were talking about how all the wars over the world and all these disagreements over like stupid things could actually just be transcended via that technology. Totally, totally. That's it. I mean, it, think about it right now. Like, like you with the click of a mouse, so the move of your finger... Um, maybe not you specifically, but you have the you have the potential to do everything from drop a bomb uh, or do a drone strike uh, to you know make someone happy by sharing a message. So we already have the point that very very minimal effort can produce drastically leveraged impact. And um, you know I I I, I had the privilege of um, being part of an incubator uh, two summers ago, and I remember watching the developers there. And I, I don't know if you've hung out with a lot of web developers before, but they tend to be introverted, and they tend to really find solace through through computers and screens, but yet really also crave kind of a, a like a like a human empathetic uh, connection. And you know, when I was watching these guys, um, guys and ladies, excuse me, at, um, really early in the morning, seeing them focused two inches from excuse me two feet from their face in a state of concentration at building these bridges, I realized like you know, sitting at a laptop is really training for kind of a telepathic and empathetic um, society. Uh, at some point, we're just going to take away the thing that's two feet away and just say, hey, I'm going to just access specific part of my neurology, which I know is connected to like a, a global neurology and um, and transfer, transmit information. It, obviously, this is unproven, but it, it, it seems like <laughs> it's my hope anyway that, that that's, you know, the 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 being tethered to devices is um it's the training wheels for unlocking this kind of telepathic nature that we all possess yeah it, it will be crazy to see how that that scenario does unfold and oh, sorry go, I was no, just go gonna ahead. Say, i think that, that point on the like the laptop being like training we are witnessing like the future right now in front of us like me and dan are looking at the um a laptop and we're just thinking like our consciousness is this laptop is the understanding of everything all in one right now. And it's going to be so powerful when we can actually just remove the laptop like we're seeing and just be all consciously connected like that. Yeah, I was just going to say as well, because I wanted to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to forget about this point, but I wanted to jump back because before as well, you sparked something in your mind because you, you, I think you were talking about um, self-driving cars and you were talking about how the sort of that system that will be in place of self-driving cars will help them cause make better decisions and obviously cause least, least, uh, less accidents on the road. But yeah. I was actually thinking, how could that transcend over to people? So I was actually thinking, how could this transcend over to um, leadership in the future? Because when it comes to, say, like leading a city or community, I was thinking in my head, like, AI could actually maybe work with government and they could work together. Yes. Yes, so how can... So the question is, is how can... Uh, and how can technology that is helping us become more empathetic be used by like leaders? Is is that what you're saying? Yeah, I was basically I was just it was just a, a thought in my head really, but I was just actually thinking maybe 
I was just thinking as a thought, maybe a question, maybe like, I mean, how could actually could 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 we actually adopt a system where like um, EIs and community, uh, sorry, where the government and EIs work together? Could we actually adopt that? Oh, totally. And we already we already use AI, so yes, absolutely. So let's explore this. So the the first thing with the AI conversation is the different types of AI. So there's there's specialized AI, generalized AI, and then super intelligence AI. Um, and for the listeners, should I should I just briefly explain differences, or, or is the yeah, yeah, Rob, yeah, cool, go ahead, that'd be great. So specialized AI is um, really good at solving specific types of problems, um, but not um, problems that are um, that require interpretation. So specialized AI could be, uh, you know, Siri. Uh, it could be the um, the computer that is now the the leading chess champion in the world. Um, it's really good. Uh, at specific tasks, but if you ask it to determine from a photo, if, if it's looking at an image of a dog or a cat, it would have no idea. Um, generalized AI is uh, more advanced in that it actually can discern. It can actually make conclusions based on many complex factors. Um, it's still many years out before generalized AI becomes a reality. So right now, specialized AI is, is already used. Generalized AI um, let's let's table that for now, and then special. Excuse me, superintelligence, of course, is like um, the kind of pooling of the collective uh, knowledge of having these different uh, data input points in all different locations, and having that create this kind of um, nospheric um, information network that's self-aware. So, to answer the question, uh, I, maybe I'll, I'll just tell a story of something that's already happening that I think is really inspiring for how tech is being used to um, help government evolve. And um, I learned this pretty recently, but it, it deals with the political system of what's happening in Taiwan. Are, have, have you guys followed this at all uh, in like the last few months? No, I'm not, no, not you, have you? No, not really. No. So um, Taiwan is, is moving to a, a post-party system right now, or, or I guess arguably you can already say that they're in a post-party system. Um, many of the political leaders there, uh, including the the premier, who's kind of like the the president, um, have been elected under a specific political party and then kind of renounced uh, allegiance to that political party and to go into this 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 new paradigm. And the reason that it started is the premier before this one, uh, whose name I wrote it down here. Let's see, uh, Simon Zhang. Uh, who had actually been a, a hacker at Google, so his his background was very IT centric. What he decided to do was pass legislation so that all of the um, IT infrastructure that the government has funded with under a million dollars, all their data would be released um, as open data. And so that in itself is pretty cool, you know, because this is like different health data and different utility data that's now in the public domain and that people can start to use it and make better decisions off it. But what happened was uh, there was a, a group of um, activists that started to build shadow websites to replace the actual government infrastructure with this open data. So let's say, for instance, you know, you would log in to vote um, on the, um, the Taiwanese government website, but uh, you didn't have all the... Uh, facts and all the candidates that were there. You didn't have um, different types of transparency things that you would expect. And so what these activists would do is they would say, okay, the voting website, let's spend three months. We're going to build it up. It's going to be really visual. It's going to be really user-friendly. And they did this for all different sectors of the government and then basically said to the government, if you want to adopt it, um, the code is going to be open source and 
this is a massive um, upgrade being done by the private sector in making the government transparent. And lo and, lo and behold, they did it uh, again and again and again, where they, they start to say, oh, you know, this is this is actually much better than what we have. And from that, uh, the conversation has evolved quite considerably in that their technological infrastructure is now further ahead. Um, they're in a in kind of a post-party system. And the citizens are now starting to realize that, okay, open data, given, uh, voting, that's just like the base level of, of having the, um, the conversation. Um, but there are a few other components that these leaders are going to need to kind of, uh, in terms of how they structure decision making, that is going to really maximize. And I, I, I'm not uh, making this up. This is by uh, Audrey Tang, who is the digital minister of Taiwan. Um, but the principles were uh, open data, so all this information has to be in the commons. Um, the people need a forum where they can ask questions and get timely answers. So although that can be facilitated through technology, it definitely is still uh, human-centric focused. It's not AI. Um, then they need face-to-face -face discussions. It's, it's absolutely essential that um, there is an empathetic uh, component to this. Um, then the government leaders need to make binding deliberations, and then they need to have agenda-setting power. Um, but at the face-to-face -face discussions, they are drastically reframed because instead of it being, we're beginning the conversation now of, you know, is climate change real or should we allow Uber in our city or whatever whatever the discussion topic is, people already have all of the, uh, the data. They've already asked discussions online and been able to get timely answers. And also there's systems that are, pulling the kind of emotional tonality of where people are at. And in Taiwan, one way that they're doing this is they're, when citizens um, connect to one of these systems, they um, are asked a series of questions uh, that narrows them in on what the largest concerns that they have are, and then those concerns become the content, you know, it's crowdsourced, they become the content of discussion for the actual in-person meetings. So it's not removing the human element at all. I think it's, I think by using um, AI to kind of streamline all of the noise into these are the core trends and we all feel really heard as individuals in the process, we can just facilitate the, the, the true task of the leadership, which is bringing all the stakeholders together, making sure people are heard and then, you know, making a decision that represents um, all the people instead of just special interests or, you know, the people that will get you elected. Um, that's, that's going to be a uh, paramount. Well, yeah, Rob, I completely agree. I think that makes it, the whole system more humanitized, to be honest. And it feels like it's more connected for everyone. And like you said, not just for like these rich elites. And I think, yeah. Rob, these small steps are going to lead to these big changes overall on a global sense. And it makes you wonder, um, like, what are these small steps going to lead to? I mean, are these small steps going to lead to eventually ridding ourselves of, like, see in America removing ourselves of these Republican Democrats and the ideas of like parties and governments running houses and like just implementing one super intelligence AI with so which understands so many different scenarios and options and does the utmost best for humanity I mean is that a stretch to like rid the humanity aspect of it out and actually create a, like an intelligent machine that can actually create this perfect future that could be run for us i, I you know i've 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 read i've read a lot on that I, it seems that it's still too far out to know in that like the whole super intelligence promise is still i mean it's still decades out 
and the conversation of algorithm versus uh, regulation, like we were talking about earlier, um, if an algorithm can do something better than us, um, but if the but if the human element is lost, and if the decisions that the AI makes are able to be criticized by human by by humans in a way that the AI can't defend, will will the majority of the population then adopt it? Um, I, it's still too soon to tell. Uh, one thing I can tell you, though, that was really interesting, I, I was at um, the South by Southwest conference last year, and I forget her name, but the, the highest paid female CEO in the United States, um, she, she's transgender, so she was born a man, and she has developed a, um, she, she does um, kind of like a bioengineering company where they are growing through DNA uh, and stem cell research, they're, they're growing organs and they're trying to clone humans. And she had created an AI of her partner that was so advanced that it was, it was just, it was striking. And the next logical question that she started to ask and ended up writing a book on this was what are the rights of AI in the future? If, if not, if, excuse me, when AI becomes self-aware, um, are they able to vote? Are they protected from, are protected from discrimination are they um given opportunities to upgrade themselves or is that controlled by uh, a human interface and um this this specific individual is is saying that the questions of this kind of ai consciousness trying to integrate in society and feeling emotional um discontent if they're not um she was predicting this like in like the mid 2020s which is uh, much more rapid than than uh, other um estimations i had heard and um it's like we're in a sci-fi movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's what we should be called actually the sci-fi podcast <laughs> oh, uh, rob i was just thinking as well there like the whole idea of um of an one ai actually running the show it kind of actually brought me to the, the film uh, war games um where you actually see how a machine would operate on a global scale, and I know that film like give a bad insight on how it would, but it did give you an understanding of like what it would perceive as like a threat, what it would perceive as like is right for a nation, and maybe all the choices wouldn't be correct, but and it might actually be a system as well that could be manipulated or programmed in favor of large businesses instead of like humanity. So it's scary, like what could actually happen as well. Totally. There's a there's a phrase that my my co-founder, who also is very uh, tapped in on this stuff, uh, says, which is, uh, "Absolute power corrupts absolutely." So to have any absolute power in any system controlled by a person or an AI is a recipe for disaster. And you know, the promise of what blockchain can provide to that, of it being unhackable, is is still yet to be battle tested. Um, there was a hack to a battle, to, excuse me, to a to a blockchain system. Uh, fairly recently, maybe about four months ago, and it was a big hack that lost, in, uh, I think, um, tens of millions of dollars. I forget the exact amount, just just being embezzled. So I would be concerned if that happens. But, um, you know, it, it, it's there, there's the question of um, could, and then there's the question of should. And I think that in the general population right now, there's n and even among the elites, because this field is so new, the question of should is is not possible to be to be answered. There's just simply not enough information. You know, Ray Kurzweil, who is the um, I think he's the head of engineering at Google now, who predicts that he'll live forever um, because he'll reach the synchronicity in his lifetime, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, and wrote the book uh, How to Make a Mind and talks about actually constructing a human brain goes into the, the incredible complexity of, of doing something like that and getting it right. And there was a, um, I don't know if you guys saw it, there was an experiment that IBM, I think, did um, maybe about a month ago where they did an AI Twitter identity. Oh, I've never seen that. <laughs> did you see this? No, have you? So, so what, what they did was the, they, they put this identity out there and it was supposed to have a personality and based on the people that it was started to follow and follow it, it was going to develop uh, more intelligence in terms of what comments it was posting and within like 48 hours it became it's it was pro-nazism it was um pro uh let's see it was anti-muslim it was pro uh, some sort of misogynistic uh activities and ultimately just like kind of self-destructed because it was trying to pull in wisdom from you know the the, the general consciousness of twitter and um that's that's the concern, right? It's like if it's learning from um, if it's learning from humans, if AI is learning from our uh, nature and maybe even understands certain factors in our nature more deeply than we do, um, uh, and a, a core one could be that we're really good at violence and we've we've used violence to solve problems uh, for millennia. Um, would the AI just take the next step in that? And that's. <laughs> You know, I like to think that as consciousness evolves, that compassion is a natural outcome, but it's it's to be determined as to if that actually will be the outcome with AI. Yeah, I think as well. They imagine the AI sort of like trying to tap into sort of like Zen books and things like that. The government would like be like, oh, don't don't just forget about them. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't think about that. Don't don't think about them type sort of questions. <laughs> I was actually thinking there as well, though, just a bit of a more like a more of a direct question I want to ask you. Because if we're looking around at the world now, it's it's clear to see that um, a lot of um, leaders are very close-minded in certain areas. But actually, I want to ask you, what do you think like leaders should be open to in the future in regards to like creating a positive, like conscious fu- future city? And I was wondering, like, why do you think they should be open to it? Good question. Um, why? Well, why should we be open to it? I think I think the role of leadership isn't necessarily it's it's first part listening right it's it's knowing that you are one mouth that's supposed to be representing thousands millions or however many people are in your constituency um and from that uh from that conversation it's overwhelming to have conversation one-on-one with everyone so you have to you have to simplify and you have to um funnel information so i think that the one of the core roles of leaders is going to be choosing the correct tools to allow that funneling to happen um it's less about um, how do I feel, you know. Let's say, let's say I'm the I'm the governor or something like that. It's it's less about how do I feel about AI because I, as the governor, know that I am not an expert in the field, and even the experts that are coming to me are biased through all sorts of different special interests. And more, just saying, um, we have to take a barometer of where the population is at. Uh, we have to choose our tools really carefully. And we have to keep the conversation. Uh, actually, another thing I could say on this is I think in many ways the leader um, is the barometer of how people should interpret things that they don't understand, right? So if I um, hear that uh, something happens in Syria and then the leader of the country says, and that means this, that's going to incite uh, – that, that could incite violence or that could incite um, – way more pause and reflection on like the human condition and tolerance and things like that. So I think if the leader is really proactive with 
reframing the unknown not as something to be scared, but as something to be held and then get many opinions for that in a way that the people trust and aren't suspicious of. That's the kind of synthesizing nature that, uh, you know, a really great, I mean, it's really a facilitator. I, I view a leadership as a role of being a facilitator um, more than anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Rob, I was just going to say, I, I, I love that answer because I, I think as well, if a leader is not open to, ch- uh, open to changes, sorry, like they're never going to grow as a human being. But ultimately as well, it's you're not just going to be holding yourself back. You could be obviously holding a, like a, um, a whole whole community back as well and the, all the world back as well yeah. and um, I was actually thinking I, I, told, I told you this before but I was actually thinking that what I would like to see is actually every leader I mean this is probably never going to go through ever never ever but I'd actually like to see every leader um, in the world sort of participate in this like monthly um, think tank where it's sort of like streamed live across like the whole of the planet on social media but the leaders yeah. actually have to answer not questions that they've, they've had like time to think of like sort of more like a podcast style where they can actually where any like anyone can sort of be involved in it and they can sort of fire questions from all over the place, and they've actually got to like sort of make their ask questions about big like shifting decisions, like not these little just minor issues that they're talking about now, like the big shifting issues that we're not really getting the that people aren't getting a, like a discussion about. Totally, totally, that would be that would be fantastic, but and, and then well, so so you're saying um, leaders as in political leaders then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That that's great. I it's pretty pretty fundamental for a thing like that is. I mean, obviously, we we would encounter the limitations of an individual's ability to answer a question properly. You know, because you'd be asked questions where they wouldn't have all the information, etc. And it would be my hope that if something like that ever happens, if if the 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 people that are uh, in power choose to you know try and act transparently in that way, that people in the the people in the in the world would then be able to iterate on those answers and evolve them because if someone doesn't agree with what the leader says it doesn't necessarily mean that the leader is wrong it just means that um maybe their solution isn't the end goal and hopefully um you'd be giving a really transparent look at where we can start to have the the non-linear discussion so like to, to come back to the the thing that we spoke about earlier of um the tragic failure of things like YouTube and Facebook and the majority of social media at actually evolving consciousness uh, and having it be a linear debate uh, as opposed to something where multiple solutions can be explored simultaneously, at least in an idea sense, um, is really important for our times. And having a leader that can be asked specific questions, that's great. That will be, you know, you'll encounter things they know, you'll encounter things they don't know, you'll encounter things they're right on, things they're not right on. And then I, I, I hope that it wouldn't polarize people further into liking a leader or not liking a leader and instead say, you know, the reason why this discussion is framed in this way is because um, a whole part of society wasn't included in the discussion. Let's find out. Let's get consensus of them. And it would be great, though, wouldn't it? Eh? Uh, it would be absolutely beautiful. I was just thinking, imagine if it actually could trickle down as well. So the leaders of like not just the leaders of um, nations, but also the leaders of cities, and then also to the leaders of um, communities, and then to little um, businesses where you could actually, if you wanted to see like um, how your business was doing, you could actually like um, you could actually go to your employer and actually he could show you the, their monthly think tank with the other um, employee to show you how they would evolve. I was actually thinking, no, it just me head there. If it is, if it's in the future, we do get to the point where. Like we have, like like you have an Argo Santi sort of say, you have these like smaller like sub communities, 
where they're all working like sort of like sort of like self sustainable like communities all over the place. You wouldn't we wouldn't you wouldn't need these like big leaders over the world. You'd have to like these the sort of like the smaller sub communities would be these sort of like self organizing systems where the people within that community would actually be the, all the leaders themselves. Sure, sure, that, sure. That's sure, what I was that, thinking there. Yeah, it's a, it's a more of a flat, like kind of cooperative worldview, and and that's that's phenomenal. And you know, certain societies exist like that, and it's it's unfortunate that that's so far from <laughs> from the United States' paradigm. I can't speak to the UK, but uh, but yeah, uh, hierarchy is kind of built into you know pr- hierarchy and. Um, rising up specifically like what one has to do to rise up through the hierarchy is kind of like the rite of passage for power here instead of um you know when you are as inclusive and possible uh, as possible and you speak in a way that's universal with no special interests the power comes from the people itself that's not how our political system works so i think in the process of setting up something like that you would be exposing you know it's like it's like even if someone says no you're you're exposing really valuable information in as to how the current system is structured. Um, I would be curious to know. So you guys, I mean, you guys, I think you're, this is like episode 60 something with podcasts now, right? Yeah, this is, this will be, um, what will this be now? This could be six. No, this could be, this episode might be about 67 because we're already, when it comes out. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Well, have you, have you had pushback from people that didn't want to talk about, what their opinions are like have you ever encountered anyone that you've asked to be on the podcast that's been like yeah you know i don't i uh, you know i don't want to be put on a pedestal or i don't have an opinion or, or something like that um to be to be brutally, brutally honest because i am honest and i'm not going to mention any guest any guest names but um what a situation that we have had on the podcast is which i've very found in them um, is that a lot of guests are and this sounds horrible seeing this but i'm just being brutally honest a lot of guests um not a lot of guests, sorry. So, some get some guest that we had on the podcast um, was so focused in one area, they were actually maybe missing the beautiful, maybe missing other beautiful questions in other areas. Yeah, doing a disservice sure. to like yeah themselves because they were so. I'm not going to say the word narrow-minded. I can't think of a word to use, but they were just maybe just so focused in one area they were actually just missing um, maybe other questions that need to be asked in certain areas. Yeah, they were like blindsided on their own views, really, weren't they? Yeah. They're really, they're, um, there was other angles to different um, areas where you could take it and it would be st- still more beautiful. And it was it's an interesting concept. Yeah. Like maybe some people just don't want to actually touch into them sort of issues and I was thinking as well though like me as a person I wouldn't I, I mean I don't want to be a person who's sort of just so um, so uh, pinpoint viewed in one area and you actually miss the beauty of other things I like actually being multi-di- multi-diverse and being allowed to sort of like play about in loads of different areas but I do understand though as well that in, in the world you sort of do need these like people who are more pinpoint focused and specialist in certain areas because if you don't have these specialists in certain areas we would probably wouldn't be sitting on this laptop now Sure. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah. So, so I guess what you're saying is that it, it sounds like, at least in in your own direct experience, like getting getting people that are leaders to come and 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 have the conversation actually isn't that hard. Uh, a lot of people are are you know open to it, um, but making sure that the conversation is then um, really beneficial and and uh, I guess unbiased with the information or, or relevant to a lot of people that's that's the art form. Um, that would that would be hard in in the, the the future scenario that you're envisioning. 
Yeah, definitely. Rob, as well, just before when I was um, talking about, just to jump back, when I was talking about the sub-communities before, I wanted to ask your opinion. Like, what do you, what do you think, like, the cities may look like in the future? Like, what is actually possible if we see work together? Sure. Um, I think cooperatives are... So there, there's a really great book. Uh, well, okay, there's a person named Michelle Bowen, so I'm going to be kind of paraphrasing a lot of what he said. Uh, he's the founder of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation and also the Commons Transition Movement, along with a few other people. And what he is kind of calling for is a balance between um, government, uh, private, and um, also collectively owned societies. So it's it's the commons, it's the private enterprise, and it's the government. And what I hope is going to happen more and more in cities is that balance is going to be reached in a way that is win-win for everyone. So, for instance, uh, when we put the the healthcare, uh, like in Canada, into the commons for the, for the elderly folks, um, the needs were met more efficiently rather than government and Medicaid or whatever meeting that need. And when you um, list out all the needs and resources in a community or a city and have that owned cooperatively, like we were talking about earlier with that type of um, co-op model, then private enterprise also benefits. So what I think is going to happen and what I hope is going to happen is that cities are going to be much more common-centric, meaning it's not just um, Central Park and um, it's not just public libraries, um, but it's actual um, core infrastructure that people can access just by nature of them being, if not citizens of country, um, citizens of the planet. And there will be more and more kind of legal and economic incentives for collaboration between the private sector um, the, the commons, you know, owned by everyone and and the government. And the ways that that will come out, it will, I, I think it's just going to be really holistic. And I think it's going to take people less away. It's, it's going to take people away from the screen and more back into like what it means to be living together in close quarters and, and how that can enhance each other's lives. Mm. I think, um, Robert, that's a beautiful answer, by the way. I think it's right now the ideas of what cities can look like in the future is absolutely phenomenal one and we have to really address that as humanity right now and especially people like um, architects who are actually designing these futures and designing these cities because in the future they're going to have the utmost job and because their job's going to have the core responsibility of expanding consciousness by creating these cities and they're having, they're having each new city is an evolvement from the past city and instead of evolving cities they're actually evolving humanity and they're going to be evolving humanity on a grand scale. Totally. Totally. Oh, actually, well, sorry, sorry, Rob, I was just going to jump in to see that because when Chris mentioned there about um, architects and things like that, I was actually watching, just before we jumped on with this podcast, I was actually watching a video and it was a guy and um, it was very inspirational actually, but it was a guy in, in um, India who was sort of like developing the slums in India. Yeah. And he, he made a very um, a very like good point. He actually said um, like all cities around the, uh, the world have been like developed by like these super wealthy architects and well known people. Not all cases, but he was just using that example. But he was talking about how they've actually lost the sense of um, the sense of like being connected to the people and hearing from the people, and actually yeah. understanding um, what people really need in a real city to like create that sustainability. And I thought that was a beautiful point. I just wanted to bring it up. Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, you know. Uh, a, a partial solution that we're seeing more and more is designing multi-use spaces as like the, the, the most common element. You know, it's like when we try and be too specific with how a space will be used, our architects are fascinating to me because they, they design the buildings, but then they stop paying attention to how the buildings are used. Like, uh, and this even happens at Arcosanti. Like the job is create the blueprints, 
work with the contractor, get the building built. But then there's no study in terms of how happy are the people here? Um, are the people repurposing the rooms that we thought of for different uses? Uh, that, that's totally bereft of that, of that study. So, yeah, getting that, that data would be really useful. Um, two thoughts that, that are popping to mind right now. So there was the, um, the massive earthquake that happened in New Zealand in Christchurch. Uh, that must have been about two or three years ago now, and it decimated a large part of the city. And before they rebuilt it, um, what the government did was they asked all the different citizens how they would want to have the city rebuilt. And it was insane. They got like tens of thousands of responses of like really beautiful things of like, I want to park here and I want this type of atmosphere here and I want it to feel this way. And they actually used that crowdsource information to inform some of the city planners that were going to rebuild. And that was like, a, you know, spurred by a disaster, which is often how, um, the, the greatest opportunities come about. And um, I, what it kind of leads to is the idea that when you design a city uh, piecemeal over decades or centuries or even more, um, it's often not optimized for, uh, for humanity anymore because it, 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 this is uh, core to Arcosanti. It's, it's just results in sprawl. And specifically, the ways that buildings are built and where they're built is based on property value and what someone that has private um, capital can afford at that time and the kind of cost-benefit analysis they use for when they build that building, will they be able to get the maximum return, et cetera. And to contrast that, you look at cities that are being constructed now in, in, in like in, in, uh, outside uh, Hangzhou in China that are literally being built all at once without anyone living there. It's just entirely wilderness, and then they'll go in and they'll take a year and they'll build a city, and then people start to inhabit it. And the incredible advantage of something like that is that all the infrastructure is centralized. So all the plumbing, all the electrical, all the fiber optic cable, um, those go in at one time. It's all fully mapped. There's schematics that show how it works. Um, max or Minimum distances are calculated for things like that. Um, it's a little intense in that sometimes those cities don't reach critical mass of population after and they become like a ghost town and that's happened in different locations too. But when these city planners are thinking now and they can actually say, hey, a national government is not looking for me to make a building or develop a neighborhood, but design the whole city and apply different permaculture techniques all the way through to, you know, whatever, um, it really can serve as a as a vehicle for making people's life phenomenal and helping consciousness evolve in groups. So I, I hope that that will be um, will be done uh, as a, as a really high art form, like 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 you're saying, more more so in the future. Yeah, definitely, Rob. And I think that's a an absolutely beautiful point to leave the podcast on. And. Rob, you really expanded people's minds into what a city could actually look like, but not just the city, what a human could look like in the future, especially inside and how, how we're all going to be connected as one. And Rob, I'd just like to thank you and from Dan, like from being on the podcast. Yeah, I'd just like to say as well, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both very much, gents. This this has been an absolute pleasure. You you, you both are, are extracting uh, extracting things that I haven't spoken of uh, this clearly before. So it's 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 a high gift, uh, an honor to be here. Yeah, it's an honor for us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and a huge thank you again to Rob again. Such an intelligent and nice guy, and it really does mean a lot to me and Chris that we can be in this position where you guys can tune in every week 
and we can basically just bring forward to you guys new concepts and new ideas and new information that's been in our minds that you can take forward and improve your human experience and others too. And please don't forget to check out and support the podcast by our Patreon page. And if you don't know what Patreon is, Patreon supports the podcast directly and you also get to receive some really cool rewards in the process. Currently we have five reward tiers set up for you guys. We have reward tiers called Hidden Citizens, Pursuit of Knowledge, Seeker, Awakened Mind, Enlightened Ones and The Paradigm Shift. And each tier has lots of fun different rewards. You might get a cool binaural beat or guided meditation every month. And why not be a part of our brand new Ascend Conscious Hub, where you get access to other awakened minds including me and Chris and guests from the podcast. And all this is extremely simple. All you need to do is go to the Send Podcast website and click on the Patreon page and click on the Patreon link. Patreon gives you the people the power to come together and decide, is this a conscious idea? So anyway, we will catch you next week in the next episode where we have a very interesting podcast with Aubrey de Grey who is on the quest to end aging. Peace.